Hello, my friends, and welcome to this edition of the New World Kirtan Podcast. It's Wednesday, March 28, 2018. I'm Kitsy Stern, and I produce the podcast as an act of love and service to our global Kirtan family. And it's also an audio journal of my spiritual journey through the practice of singing and playing Kirtan. Well, it's wet and cold here in Oregon, and I'm feeling it even more because I'm just back from New Orleans, where it was warm and sunny. Oh, it was so nice. Even the rain was warm. I was there for Sean Johnson and the Wild Lotus Band's Bhakti Immersion, a transformative experience. And I spent it with 40 beautiful people from all over the country, most of them yoga teachers who were there to discover more about Bhakti and how to integrate it into their teaching. We had a magical week together, and in this week's podcast, I'll walk you through a day at Bhakti Immersion through some of the recordings I made while I was there. Bill and I arrived on Saturday evening, and we went straight to the Sacred Music Festival, where Sean, Alvin, and Gwen, with guest Matthew Huffschmidt, were headlining. They played a great set, and I loved seeing them in a smaller venue as opposed to on a big stage at a festival. The last time I saw the Wild Lotus Band play live was in Bermuda at Ohmfest several years ago, and we had a great time there with David Newman. There's a New World Kirtan podcast about it called Singing Kirtan with Tree Frogs, and it's in the archives. On Sunday morning, we began our week of bhakti immersion. We'd meet at 10, and our day would begin with sargam, a Hindustani classical Indian vocal exercise that Sean describes as vocal vinyasa. I did this with Sean in Bermuda, and it's a powerful vocal workout. Here's an example of what that was like. Then we had a break, which was followed by either storytelling or a bhakti-on-the-mat yoga class. I loved the yoga classes, and Sean, with his Irish roots, is an incredibly good storyteller. Alvin and Gwendolyn improvised some amazing music, adding so much to the drama and line of the story. We all provided the sound effects. It was really fun, and to listen to it, I suggest that you lay down and get comfy, as we did. Get your kids, or find your inner kid. Provide some sound effects if you're into it. This is a tale that comes from the Zulu tradition. 
It's about a frazzled mom and dad named Manzan Daba and Zenzele and their children who demanded stories. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, maybe not so far. The story actually comes from the Zulu tradition of Africa. It's an example of how we can find bhakti, experience bhakti, cultures, and art all around the world. There lived in a village a long time ago a sweet family. The wife and mother's name was Manzandaba. Can I say it Manzandaba. She was a sweet soul. And her husband, kind man, his name was Zinzele. Zinzele. They had several wonderful children, and they were very busy throughout the day, doing things that they loved, growing food and cleaning. Zayla was a great carver, and he carved wonderful scenes from their life into wood, including all of the things they did during the day, the neighbors, their neighbors' homes, people carved, animals around them that lived in the forest around them in the car. And they wove baskets and they made jewelry. Generally, they were really, really happy. But every night, the sun would go down and they would light a fire. There wasn't as much to do with so little light. Children would get a little antsy, a little impatient, and inevitably they would cry out to their mother, Mama! Thank you. 
wishes of their children is they may feel very, very restless themselves. So one day, they made a decision as a family. Hans and Dava go out in search of stories. So they all gathered the next morning. They handed their mother some food. And he told her that they had created a special song for her journey. And that if she sang this song along the way, she was bound to find stories. And those stories would carry her back to them, full circle, where she could share those stories with the family. So, Zimzele and the kids, they began to hum this sweet, special song. Get out of here, lady! Walked on. 
walked past a large tree and she saw seated up in that tree was a huge queen owl.
you know you stole these. Please, my children have been begging for a story. Hmm. I don't know any myself, but I know someone who does. You stay here on this rock for three days and for three nights, and I'll be back. She thanked him, flew away. She sat on that rock and she sang her song. Turtles 
Where do we go, y'all, for inspiration? Where do we go? Where do we go when we're feeling dried up, when we're feeling lost, when we feel like all the ideas have been worn out, we're feeling parched on the inside, cynical, exhausted. Where do we go? Where do we go? Those of us who, who work with other people as yoga teachers, or meditation teachers, or musicians, or in some kind of service, where do we go? when we feel like we don't have anything to give anymore. Where do we go? To the bottom of the ocean. We go down. We, we go on a journey. And we commit. The key part to the story, which I really, which I really like, it's actually a little bit of a liberty taken with the story. What did the king and queen ask for? The picture, right? But what else? Visit. Inspiration. On a regularly basis. <laughs> regularly. Regularly. I heard an interview with uh, Mary Oliver recently. On Being is a really amazing uh, podcast. The On Being podcast. I highly recommend it. It's uh, based in Twin Cities. Krista Tippett. It's a really, really great interviewer. And she interviews artists and scientists and philosophers and sometimes musicians, uh, poets, about the nature of uh, spirituality. Anyway, she was interviewing Mary Oliver, who's a fantastic poet, who spent most of her life in New England roaming through the woods with a notebook, uh, jotting down poetry and uh, refining it over a period of time. And uh, Mary Oliver, she asked Mary Oliver what her process was for writing poetry. And Mary Oliver says every morning she gets up early, she makes some coffee, she sits at her desk, and she writes. Doesn't matter if she's sick, doesn't matter if she's in a good mood or a bad mood, doesn't matter what else is going on in her life. She goes to the desk, same time, every morning, she writes her poetry. Sometimes nothing comes out, sometimes something wonderful comes through. And she shows up. And what she said was, she shows up because she considers that to be an appointment with the muses. Mm. And if she doesn't show up, the muses won't trust her. Mm. They won't give her any gifts. Mm. Regularly. Mm. Regularly. Mm. Regularly. Mm. So, um, can we cultivate a practice that takes us into the depths on a regular basis? And if we can, then gifts arise from that connection, that ritual of going to those depths, you know, having that practice, meeting the muses. And in Western uh, understanding of the muses, they live out there somewhere, and if we're really lucky, every once in a while they come and they help us out, give us a good idea. In the yogic understanding of this energy, it's energy that's within us, that we awaken from inside, but sometimes it's concealed, it's dormant, we're numb to it, we're dull to it. So I love that about the story. You make that commitment to go to the depths, and we'll give you something in exchange, you know? We'll give you, we'll give you some stories to work with. And uh, so I think, uh, that's one of the great 
ways to bring the bhakti immersion to, to, into your day-to-day -day life after you leave here is find a practice. And it could have been any number of things that we shared with you this week or other things that really speak to you. Find a practice that consistently takes you to your depths and commit to it. Stay faithful to it. Trust it, even when you're not feeling it. And uh, many, many rewards you know, will come from that, that deep connection. The cool thing about bhakti is it's so portable. You know, you don't need us to do bhakti. You, know, you don't need books. You don't need a harmonium. It's just you, your own imagination. And there's so many different ways of practicing and expressing wasn't that wonderful? Well, after that, we were ready for lunch. And during our lunchtime, Sean led several discussions. The next two clips are what I recorded with his thoughts on how to introduce kirtan to a yoga class. And then, for those who lead kirtan, how to walk that line between surrendering to the bliss and our obligation to the group as a kirtan leader. That's Alvin speaking at the end of the clip. It was really interesting to me. I hope you enjoy it, too. Question. Maybe you covered it earlier, Sean, in some of the other meetings, but is there a sort of progression uh, with respect to introduction? Um, meaning, you know, as a, like, having a studio, you don't want people to come in and all of a sudden you're introducing something new and then never show up again and cancel memberships. And that's a scary thing to make drastic changes. Um, and, you know, yeah, I guess drastic changes. There's certain things you could probably roll in there with that people would be like, okay, I'm out. Um, yeah. how, do you, how do you deal with that initial fear of making that change at a studio? And then secondly, is there a progression of doing that that you think is appropriate? Sure. We, we spent a good amount of time on this in one of the lunches earlier. And it might be something that I can go into deeper detail. I'd be happy to talk to you guys, because I know you have a studio. Uh, but just on the, uh, put it in a nutshell, there was a period of time where I separated asana from bhakti. And uh, for that reason, because people were walking out in classes. Uh, and uh, I, I reached a point where I, I either had to quit teaching asana or I had to find a way to bring them together. It was like not a choice. And so I decided that, I was young, I was a young teacher, this is like 20 something years ago. Um, and I realized that it was my, really my responsibility, rather than negating that from what I was offering, which I think a lot of yoga teachers are doing, they're, they're watering down or negating the spiritual part of the, asana, you know, the yoga experience in their asana classes because they think that they'll lose members or they'll lose, lose students or, or people won't like them or people will be turned off by yoga, you know. And I was, at the, I had all those fears and I watched them actually come true. But I realized that it was my responsibility to educate the students in as clear a way as I could to build a bridge and to be as, to make the practices as accessible as possible uh, so that then I feel like I did my part and 
if they don't like it, then I have to be okay with them not liking it. If it's if I'm really passionate about it and it's important to me, I have to be okay. And and the, the, it's it's a leap of faith because what ends up happening is we end up attracting the people that want that, you know, that are attracted to that that, that are passionate about the same thing. And it may be a period of time like a growing pains where you start to put some new elements, bhakti elements into your classes and you lose like the you lose some students, but you have to have faith that that's just that's just temporary. Like the ones that really want what you have to offer, it will grow. It will grow again. You know. And I shared earlier with the group that there was a period of time where we were one of the only yoga studios in New Orleans, and we were trying to be something for everybody. And that was a really good book business strategy as well as service. But then within two to three years after Hurricane Katrina, when everybody the city started rebuilding again, suddenly there was 25, 30 yoga studios. When mm -hmm. 2005, there was four. Wow. And so all of a sudden, like from a business standpoint, like part of me was worried, afraid, you know, and went into sort of scarcity mode. But then part of me overcame that and was like, no, there's an opportunity here. <coughs> Instead of being something for everybody, that the public we don't need to be that anymore. Now we can be really be what we want to be, which is Bhakti Studio. Uh, but this goes towards your first steps question, progression question. Like you may probably notice if you go to our website, it doesn't say Wild Lotus Yoga, New Orleans Bhakti Studio. It says New Orleans home for heart-centered yoga down-to-earth spirituality. <laughs> and like that's in a nutshell what bhakti means to me and how I like to practice it and how I like to express it. So it's finding the words that help to build the, the bridge for our students that helps them to make the connection for themselves, you know. Uh, and um, I offer in, in, the, in the Bhakti for Yoga Teacher section, there's a few pages on, on how to do that, some different tips for how to do that that we covered in one of our other uh, lunchtime sessions. I just encourage you know you guys to you know, all of us, all of us yoga teachers. If you want to bring bhakti into your classes, and it doesn't not every yoga class has to have bhakti in it. <laughs> like if you love bhakti and you're like keeping that from your students because you think they're not going to like you, then I, then I would invite you to to consider what you could do to make it more accessible. Find the language and the, the communication to try to help them to open up to the possibility. And what that involves is us putting ourselves in their shoes and finding metaphors from their life that relate to some of the stories, you know, in the, in the bhakti tradition, to, to finding ways of contextualizing and translating and interpreting the meaning of the mantras uh, that is less esoteric, you know, and cultish, <laughs> and more like meeting people where they are in their own lives and finding universal, uh, human stuff that we all go through and, and, and making mention of that as, a, as an introduction to some of the mantras in the chanting. And then there's a whole section in, the, in that section of the Bhakti for Yoga Teachers which goes into specific techniques for how to uh, share kirtan with a conservative audience or an atheist <laughs> or religious. You know, it's like two sides of the spectrum. So thank you for asking that again. It gives me an opportunity to really like put it in a nutshell, you know, for everybody and, and for those of you who weren't there for those conversations as well. 
if you guys want to chat about it too, from like more like the studio owner to studio owner, I'd be happy to, to talk to you guys. We can, we can arrange a time. Yeah. Thanks, so. Thanks. You know, it's funny, here, <coughs> Tan, I think this is good for the new, newcomers to leading as well to think about. Like, you're, it's a really interesting experience because you're having, you're doing a personal practice. It's very intimate, like you're with yourself and you're feeling the energy of the, of the mantras. Uh, and it would be so easy to just go so deep into that that you disconnect from the people that you're sharing it with. And you go into this blissful state or, you know, you just go wild or you go really, really deep and quiet, you know. And then another part, of it, but another part of you has to be <coughs> present with the space and the crowd there. And so you're taking care of two things at the same time. It's like multitasking, you know. You gotta be enough in your own personal experience for it to be authentic, you know, and for you to be feeling this from the inside out, while still being um, able to be sensitive to the people in the room, whether they're they're following along, um, what their energy is like, what's, you know. So, so it's it's really interesting because you're like here, <laughs> but at the same time you're you've gotta be yeah, you're part of your awareness has to be out there, you know. So it's. Again, it's like something for you to discern, but I think that in a way, like we have to sort of sacrifice at times that ecstatic place or that deep, quiet place that we would rather go to for our personal practice uh, for the group, for the benefit of the group. Uh, sometimes we have to sacrifice that like a little bit, you know. And then sometimes the depth, uh, the fire, or the or the sweetness or the peace that that we can really awaken from the inside out is the very thing that the crowd needs, mm. you know, in order to right. feel into what we're doing. Like we, we give them the permission to feel that same thing. But it's like it's a balance, though, <laughs> and it can go too far in one direction. <coughs> I'll say the the. Uh, let me make sure this. <coughs> I know. <coughs> I know it's fun. Huh? Okay. Um, so on the one hand, you can just sort of isolate yourself to the point where you're disconnecting from the crowd. On the other hand, you could be so in performance mode, yeah. you know, where it's more like a like there's a difference between leading a kirtan and a musical performance. There's they merge in places, but if you're just like basically playing for the crowd, but not really feeling it from the inside out, you know, then something's missing there, you know, uh, in my opinion. I mean, you watch some singers, and I've heard some singers talk about it. They could be singing a song with lyrics that they wrote, and it's it's a heartbreaking thing. Mm -hmm. They can go to the edge, but if they start, if they indulge into totally feeling it and crying, the performance is over. Right. You physically, you right. can't sing when you cry. Yeah. But truly, it's a it's a strange edge to go to. Then we split up into groups to learn how to play kirtan. Sean led the beginning harmonium players. Musician and teacher Joe Ashlar led the intermediate harmonium players. Alvin taught guitar and bass, and Gwendolyn taught rhythm. I was with Gwen for most of the sessions. As you know, she is one freaking amazing drummer, and she's so fun, and I learned a lot, including that it's really hard to sing and play drums at the same time. Every day we all learned a song, and at the end of the day we all got together and played the song we learned. I just loved looking around the room during the jam and imagining all the kirtan bands that might have had their beginnings at Bhakti Immersion. 
Here's a bit of our jam from the first day. On the last day, we had personal sharing. People shared poems, music, meditations, moving meditations, all kinds of things. And I was just floored by the vulnerability and the courage revealed by that sharing. It was humbling to be among the bright spirits who were in that room. What a beautiful experience it was. Bhakti immersion is also all about New Orleans. So it was important to Sean that we get a taste of what life is like for the people who live there. The first night, he invited us all to his house for an amazing dinner. We met his sweet wife, and they're expecting a baby boy next month. April 25th is the due date. Needless to say, they're a little excited about it. Then Tuesday night, Gwen took a group of us to bars on Frenchman Street that featured live bands. And Wednesday night, she threw a dance party at her house with a live band that I heard was just great. I missed some of these activities because Bill's son flew in to hang out with us. And on Thursday, we had the day off, and the weather was glorious. So Bill, Palmer, and I had brunch, fried catfish and grits, and then we walked around the Garden District. It was so fun, and I made so many bad food choices. I mean, what are you going to do? We were in New Orleans, right? And, and there were cheesy grits. <laughs> We stayed at a charming Airbnb not far from the French Quarter. There was a great neighborhood bar right down the street. And sometimes there was a mystery calliope that would just appear out of nowhere and would start playing Let Me Call You Sweetheart. I never did find out where it was. The food everywhere we ate was amazing. And we were there over St. Patrick's Day and spring break. <laughs> so you can imagine the party that was going on. I love New Orleans. I always have. And now I am binge-watching Treme <laughs> on HBO. Anyway, the Call and Response Foundation sponsored my trip, and many people at the retreat had questions about their outreach programs for supporting kirtan and prisons and for hospice patients. If you want to lead kirtan in your community or feel called to do prison or hospice outreach, check out their website because you might qualify for one of their grants. April is shaping up to be a big month for Kirtan here in Corvallis. David Newman is coming next week, and his concert is sponsored by the Corvallis Unitarian Universalist Church. We're so excited to host him, and as a bonus, he'll be backed by Benji and Heather Wertheimer of Chantala. David will be leading a Kirtan, doing a workshop, and he'll co-lead the Sunday service with the UU's minister, Jill McAllister. Later in the month, we're hosting a screening of Mantra Sound into Silence, an amazing movie about chanting I saw last summer at Omega. If you have a chance to either host it or go see it, do, because it's great. And then Rob and Melissa Kirtan are coming through at the end of the month. Coming up in May, we'll have an interview with Deva and Maten when they return to Portland. Just now, Maten is recovering from heart surgery, so please take a moment and direct some healing, loving energy to him. So we're going to finish out this podcast with music from Sean Johnson and the Wild Lotus Band. The next Bhakti Immersion will be held in the fall in New Orleans, darling. 
you should get yourself there. Until next time, namaste.
Remember who you are. Remember who you Sukino, 
Neither flesh of dust, no wind inspire, no water from beans, no made of fire. My place, it's the no place. My image is without face. My image is without face. Oh, my place, it's the no place. My image is without face. My image is without face. Stop. 